I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones, and this week I'm talking to Rosa Lister, who's researching a book about the global water crisis with the support of the Pulitzer Centre on Crisis Reporting. Some of that work in progress has been published in the LRB. First, a diary from just over a year ago, reporting from Mexico City, and now the diary in the current issue of the paper, an account of Rosa's recent visit to the Aswan Dam in Egypt. Hello, Rosa, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me. So let's begin with where I'm guessing your interest in the water crisis began, in Cape Town, where you're speaking to me from now. And you wrote a bit about Cape Town in your Mexico City piece last year. And in 2018, is this right, the water levels in Cape Town's reservoirs got so low that it looked as if the city might be going to run out of water altogether. So maybe you can begin by just talking us through what happened then. In 2018, it was this um, really, really bad drought. It was, you know, it was called this kind of once-in-a-century drought. And the dam levels were dropping to a point where water couldn't be safely extracted. And then after that, the taps were going to get turned off. And that was going to be called day zero. And then the plan after that, when the taps were off, was that everyone was going to queue um, for 25 litres of water a day. And there was this build-up, I suppose, of about a year where it became apparent that, well, at the time, it really, really did seem that we were heading in that direction, that soon the taps would be turned off and soon we would be queuing for 25 litres of water a day. And there were these kind of signs on the freeway that would give the water levels of all the different dams. Cape Town is supplied by six dams, and it would kind of tell you the water levels of the separate dams and then collectively how much water there'd be. And then you know, there'd be kind of blinking signs on the freeway as you drive past, and it would just drop and drop and drop and drop. And we were all just kind of waiting for this thing to happen. And it felt like for a little while that Cape Town was the kind of biggest story in the world. And day zero was, you know, the biggest, the biggest story in the world. And then it didn't happen. But that never really felt like anything other than a kind of deferred judgment. And why didn't it happen? Because everyone was encouraged to use less water. I mean, that, that number, the 25 litres a day, how much water does a person use in a day? I mean, I know it varies a lot between people, but as it were, someone in a European or American city being careless with their water, turning the taps on, running the tap and brushing their teeth, having a shower, mm. running the dishwasher or the washing machine. How many litres a day does, does a person use without thinking about it? It's, no, I mean, as soon as you start thinking about it, you, you kind of like plunge down a bit of a rabbit hole. But 
I actually looked it up just before we started talking. And I think in the UK, the average is something like 150 liters a day. So 25 liters is, is really not a lot. And, you know, the, the sort of the reason that day zero, that the taps didn't get turned off, never materialized was, you know, people really, really did dedicate a lot of time and effort to saving water. They really did. We all had, you know, people who have always had running water in their homes kind of change their relationship with water. And there were, you know, a whole lot of things that got kind of moved around and like agricultural quotas got changed and that kind of thing. But the, the real thing that happened, the real reason that day zero never turned up was that it rained. You know, you, that's the, the real reason that we, that, that, you know, it rained when it was supposed to. Cape Town's a, a rainy place and there'd been this, this terrible drought. And so that's why it didn't happen. But um, we sort of became, I think, it, it became this feel-good climate change story in a way, if, <laughs> if such a thing is possible. <laughs> but I suppose that one of those things about that the rains came and there's that thing that it's mm. well, in the old days or whenever that the idea that when during a drought, however awful it is, there is always the or always was the promise, the expectation that eventually the rains will come again and the drought will be over. But what we do, we, but we no longer have that, do we? Because there's no, we we don't, or you know, just the the, the that certainty I think is kind of slowly being eroded. The the expectation, you know, it's not the first drought. Cape Town's ever had, of course, but I think just I don't know some some about kind of two and a half years into it, more and more people who had never thought like that just suddenly started kind of thinking like God, what if it just never rains again? What if it just doesn't happen? It, we, you know, th- there's been years and years of these dry winters now, and you know we all just became kind of obsessively like monitoring the weather because it that kind of I don't know, hydrological certainty that you sort of rely on. It just, it, it just kind of left. And now it has rained in Cape Town. And have people changed their, um, but people's water use, is, is everyone still very careful? Do you have the sense that people are still very aware of the, <sighs> that the water could run out and they're more careful again? Or has everyone gone back to... I change my mind about this all the time. Sometimes I think, yes, we have people who have always taken water for granted, you know, which in a city like Cape Town that is so massively unequal is not necessarily all that many people. But people who have in the past taken water for granted, they, you know, they have changed their relationship with it, I think. But then on the other hand, it's, you know, with a water crisis, what I've found when all over the world, not only in Cape Town, is that when it's not an immediate in-your-face crisis, it sort of recedes from view. Because you're so used to taking it for granted. You have to take it for granted. Otherwise, you'll go nuts. So you're so used to taking it for granted that when it's not this immediate kind of terrifying crisis, you you just shelve it for a little while. But, you know, just speaking from my own kind of personal experience, I still can't really watch a movie now, even like three years later, where someone is um, like running a tap, like in a spy, in a spy movie. You know, when they run a tap to, to like... I don't know, muffle the noise of the... The bugs, to, yeah, to, the bugs. to fool the bugs or whatever, um, yeah. I still, I find, I find it so distracting. I can't watch it. We just think, oh my God, I got all this water coming out the tap and they're not paying attention to it. I've made the like dreadful error of watching that movie called The Shape of Water oh, yeah. during the middle of the water crisis and actually had to walk out of the cinema <laughs> because, you know, there's these many scenes where she's running baths that fill her whole flat mm. and I couldn't, I, I couldn't do it. 
So the very long answer to your question is that I don't actually know. I think for some people, it left this kind of indelible mark, that experience, you know, when we were going to be the first city to run out of water. But then for other people, I think it, it just kind of, when it's not an in-your-face catastrophe, people just stop thinking about it. And then you look outside, as I am looking outside right now, and it's raining. And you think, well, of course it'll be fine. And, you know, I feels like a pretty big bet to make mm-hmm. that it's just going to carry on being fine. And I mean, that, that feeling of fear and anxiety mm-hmm. that you begin your piece from last year about flying to Mexico City with this, I might say wonderful, terrifying <laughs> analogy where the, there, was a, there was an oil leak on the plane. <laughs> and that feeling of being out of control mm-hmm. and in a situation where you, you sort of, you don't think about it. Normally you're on an aeroplane and it's flying and in order to be, stay calm and sane when you're in a metal tube up in the air you don't think too hard about it but and so you make that analogy sort of more or less implicit well implicitly explicitly between that sense of being on a plane that might crash and being in a city that's running out of water yeah i was on this flight they they kind of just made this announcement and they said um the captain has noticed an oil leak so we'll be landing in Houston. So it was from, the flight was from New York to Mexico City. And this announcement came up in the thing and it said, the captain has noticed an oil leak, which I, I think is a very scary way of saying it. And we will be landing in Houston shortly. And if you see um, fire engines waiting on the runway, don't worry. They're, they're there waiting for us. Which I just thought, like, why would that make anybody worry less? Why would that do anything other than cause like a great surge of screaming panic with amongst everyone on the plane? But I just so clearly remember thinking when I was on the plane, it's like, why are they telling us this? Um, This can only make everybody feel worse. And the same feeling kind of dogged me throughout the, the really bad years of the water crisis in Cape Town. And I know it's crazy, but I just kept thinking, why are they telling us? Why are they telling us this? It's so bad. The news is so bad. They shouldn't, you know, shouldn't we be like protected from it in some way as if we're seven? <laughs> I suppose, well, that question, how does it, how does it help to know? And maybe we'll, we'll get to that a bit later, but there, but it's the same as, I mean, it, with the COVID-19 numbers that every day checking how many new cases, how many vaccines are delivered. And, and that, I don't know, it sometimes feels as if somehow by looking at the numbers, watching the counters, watching the votes come in, you somehow gives you a full sense of control over this huge thing that you have no control over. So you Absolutely. And the problem in Mexico in Mexico City that it doesn't have the six reservoirs around it, does it? That there's this sort of where does Mexico City get its water from? Mexico City is a really interesting one. It is built, you know, the the original Aztec City was was built um amongst these sort of lakes. And then when it was colonized, the, the lakes were drained. And so the city is built, the modern city is built on this lake bed. And Mexico City it is one of the rainiest places in the world. It gets more rain than London. And it's surrounded almost entirely by mountains. And there's no natural drainage for the lakes. Um, so it, it sits on this lake bed. And the, the, the kind of the big challenge has always been just getting water out because it's almost like a basin. Um, and so the big challenge has always been getting wastewater out of the city. And then the, there's two rivers that supply the city and they're, they're both about, I, I don't know, they're outside of the city and that brings the water in. And I think, you know, I think that's, that's a big 
part of what I struggled to understand about the Mexico City water crisis from Cape Town, because obviously, as you say, when you start paying attention to things like dam levels or, you know, number of hospital cases for COVID, I, you know, I started just idly monitoring every other water crisis in the world. And, you know, the one in Cape Town was kind of easy to understand in a way because you could see it, you could see it in the dams, but Mexico City is different. It, it gets its water from far away. And then a lot of it, a lot of its water comes from aquifers underneath the city. And the groundwater extraction, Mexico's big problem is that um, extraction of the aquifer is happening much, much faster than it can be replenished. And it's very, very hard, I think, to picture an aquifer, to worry about you know, whether an aquifer is being depleted because you can't see it. And as far as I know, groundwater um, use isn't really regulated. It's Well, in, in a lot of the world, it's not mm-hmm. regulated. But I don't, as far as I know, it's not really regulated in Mexico City. So the city is basically sinking as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more. And there's more pressures placed on these water sources. More and more and more groundwater is extracted and it's sinking into the lake beds. The cathedral is falling into the ground. And then the, the situation in Egypt, in Cairo especially, being the biggest city in Egypt, is different again because the water comes from the Nile and that's so famously that the, the flooding of the Nile that brings fertility to the, the Nile Delta and to Egypt. But the rain that the Nile carries to the Mediterranean doesn't fall on Egypt, does it? So this this sense of as water becomes scarce and the worry about whose, whose water is it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is one of the great, unresolved questions that you that you address in your piece that where does it where does Egypt's water come from yeah you know there's this um a guy who he's a professor of hydropolitics and he's had to he had, he's worked in Egypt for a very long time and he had to leave and he you know he's, he's spent a very 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 long time like working on hydropolitics in the region and he said and I he's kind of joking but not really he said that um you know, in most places in the world, like farmers look to the sky for water, but in Egypt, they look to Ethiopia. And these figures are sort of disputed, but basically 80% of the water in the Nile as it arrives in Egypt originates in the Ethiopian highlands. And Egypt's 95% um, of Egypt's water comes from the Nile. Egypt exists because the Nile exists, you know, nothing more than any other of the countries that, that share the Nile. It arrives in Egypt, but it most of it originates in Ethiopia. And then it's just this question that has been raised again and again and again and again. It's like, whose water is this? And how and who decides whose water it is? And is that something that you found elsewhere? I mean, sort of traveling to Mexico and to Egypt and... I don't know where other places that you, you've been to researching this book. We talked a bit about the differences between the aquifer under Mexico City and the and then the, the Nile bringing the water to Egypt and the in South Africa and in Cape Town that the in some sense seems sort of more obvious that the the rain falls on the mountains and flows into the reservoirs into the city. But it, so there are these differences, but as well as, as well as the similarities that everywhere seems to be running out of water. You know, I think. The reason that there's been so much attention on um, the building of this dam in Ethiopia is because, you know, it's, it's going to be the biggest dam in Africa when it's finished. And there's this kind of, there's been 
10 years of this break breakdown of negotiations between Egypt and Sudan and Ethiopia about who, you know, how much ca- uh, water can Ethiopia impound? What is it going to be used for? How much water um, is Egypt entitled to? How much water is Sudan entitled to? And it's been 10 years of this a repeated breakdown in negotiations. But I think one of the reasons that it is given a lot of coverage is because I think people think that this is maybe here's a situation that is going to lead to the first transboundary water war. You know, that's it's it's got a certain ring to it. Um, and that's how it's, it's sort of framed in a lot of um, coverage, I think. But, the, you know, the, the reality is, is that, like, on the sort of Mexico-American border, just for instance, they have, there's been a, they don't want to call it a war, but there's been this, like, roiling kind of ongoing skirmish. Like, I don't know what the difference is between a skirmish and a war, but um, that's been going on for a very, very long time about like disputes over water debts between America and Mexico. And there's all sorts of places all over the world where it is kind of already happening. And it's, but, but, but not, you know, perhaps not quite in the spectacular way that one imagines when you say transboundary water, but it kind of is happening. These disputes are getting more and more um, heated. And as these resources, there's more pressure on these resources, there's just more and more possibility of this happening all the time. And the play, I mean, isn't like the Golan Heights that one of the reasons that that's strategically so important is because, of course, because of the source of the Jordan and and I think in in Kashmir as well that they're the mm. that one of the reasons for that. So, so in a sense, I mean, you could look at almost any serious border dispute anywhere in the world, and there's a good chance there'll be exactly there may be water at the region, partly because rivers rivers of natural boundaries. Mm. So if you're going to start dividing. Things into countries you're gonna. It's a very useful line to draw, but I mean, it, I mean, exactly. It's like a you know. And then if you think about it, it's 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 if you control a country's, I mean, or whatever, a city's water infrastructure, you control the city. And you know, there's a very like long and bitter history in the Middle East of water's use as a weapon of war, either you know targeting water infrastructure or diverting rivers, and it's as a kind of coercive weapon i guess there's there's almost nothing to to beat it but i think for that same reason that is why there hasn't been a massive war over water even though as you know all these places you mentioned that sort of sounds like something that that could erupt at any moment but i think that is the it, it's so fundamental water that there's a sort of mutually assured destruction element to it that the reason that these things ha- haven't boiled over is because that's it that's the end of the line you can't survive without it that's that's it I mean, one of the things you make plain in your piece is that it may, one can pretend or it might look as if that the problem, Ethiopia is filling this dam and that's meaning water's not coming to Egypt, but actually the reasons for the, the rising sea levels and climate change, and there's so many different reasons for, for the water shortages that actually we can't just blame our neighbours because they're running out of water too and it's a, it needs to be a collaborative. I mean, it's a, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a shared problem. Mm. One of the scariest of all these statistics I've seen about this, I read it in Amitav Ghosh's book, The Great Derangement, published in 2017, that 47% of the world's people depend on water that flows from the Himalayas. And if the glaciers continue to shrink at the present rate, the most populous parts of Asia will face catastrophic water shortages within a decade or two. And at this point, it seems you read a sentence like that, and it seems like the 
absolute most urgent in a way that a, a viral pandemic mm. is nothing compared to there being no water flowing from the Himalayan watersheds. So, and I suppose it's that thing, as you say, you can't think if you think about it too much. The only thing you'll think <laughs> about. <laughs> it's the only thing you'll think about. But, you know, I think a lot of what I'm trying to figure out when I've been, you know, writing about Egypt and writing about Cape Town and writing about Mexico City is how to write about it or think about it or talk about it in a way that doesn't involve kind of blacking out from fear because there has to be a way of addressing it that doesn't, you know, I've, I've, I've had many of these books on my bedside table for like months and I just, I can't, they've sort of taken, they almost like radiate now with the amount that I fear them because I don't want to read about this stuff. But I think a lot of, I've been preoccupied for a long time with, with how, how, do you, how do you write about something like this? Or how do you think about it without being scared, that, you know, beyond um, cognition? <laughs> and the, you know, yeah, something like the, the Himalayas, that sort of t- statistic is absolutely frightening. But I think there, there has to be a way of writing about it and thinking about it that encourages something other than just like, oh my God. Um, because it is, you know, the, the, the it, it is happening. It's happening to ordinary people and there has to be an acknowledgement that it's not, you know, I mean, so many of the statistics say like, you know, in 30 years time and whatever, but a lot of the stuff is it's happening now, you know, in South Africa, in the, the water crisis in Cape Town is kind of shelved for now, but in the Eastern Cape, it's much worse than it ever was in Cape Town now, you know, it's a crisis or an emergency now. And there, there has to be a way of acknowledging that and trying to do something about it. I don't know what. Yeah. And there's that, I mean, in terms of and doing things about it, the sort of technical solutions, have you, have you been to any desalination plants or that kind of thing? I mean, is that, is there any hope in those sorts of big tech ideas that we can solve the water crisis by evaporating the sea? Or is that? I mean, you know, that was that was the big, the big plan for Cape Town, and I think maybe still is the plan. But you know, in Egypt and in Mexico City, something that would would make a huge, huge, huge difference is fixing busted old water infrastructure. That would make a massive difference. Yeah, and in London, yeah, and nobody wants to do that because it's expensive and boring and puts people out, and it's not it's not very flashy. Do you know what I mean? It's like what politician wants to be the person who has the dreary job of saying, we're just going to fix the pipes. It's much more interesting or, you know, from a political point of view to go, I'm going to build a massive dam or whatever it is. Um, it drums up yeah. a lot well, more. The, yeah. Well, there's that story about that the, the sewers finally got built in 19th century London because just one summer, the Thames smelled so bad that the MPs couldn't sit in the, in the House of Commons without gagging from the smell. And at that point, they thought, okay, let's build some sewers. So maybe <laughs> enough. Yeah, it has to sort of reach that. Yeah. Yeah. That point of, of discomfort for the people who, who have the power. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, other things they seem like, I mean, the amount of water that gets used for, for irrigation, for example, and it gets wasted in sort of spreading water on fields mm-hmm. rather than tugs. 
But I mean, do those do you see much hope in those sorts of things? That kind of precise GPS, you can, you know exactly where the seeds planted, so you can put just the right amount of water on each seed, and you can develop salt resistant strains of rice that can grow in salinated paddy paddy fields and that kind of thing. I mean, is that? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I hope there's hope in that kind of stuff. And but you know, in a, in a place like Egypt, it is so far away from something like that. The amount of water that's being used in a kind of large-scale agriculture, and and you know, growing incredibly water-intensive crops in basically um, reclaimed desert, and growing kind of crops to be exported to the Gulf states, for instance. You know, it is so far away from any of the sort of solutions that you just mentioned. That and not just Egypt, is it? Of I course. mean, that's. Clearly true in Western Europe and, you know, in the way the Colorado River no longer reaches the Pacific Ocean and that kind of... Exactly. and But yeah. but because, you know, I think as we were sort of saying earlier, you still are... One still does take this resource for granted because it is so central. And if your whole life revolves one way or another, no matter who you are, on the assumption that you will be able to get water, and that's not, you know... Lots and lots and lots of people have never had that luxury, of course. But if you are one of the people who's kind of grown up and lived with the guiding assumption that you will, you know, be able to turn on a tap and water will come out of it, I think you do take it for granted. And that on a city-wide scale, on a provincial scale, on a national scale, on an international scale, when you think about it like that, your guiding assumption is that it's going to be okay. There is enough water and there isn't. <laughs> but do you think if it, would, if it were to reach the point where the people who, those of us who are lucky enough to be able to turn a tap on, and I mean, even, I mean, they're sort of just crazy things. The, the way that we flush our toilets mm. with, you know, water that's good enough to drink mm. is sort of lunatic. Right? It's demented, you know, and I, I think it, it will be one of those things in kind of 20 years' time that it'll be like, we, you know, you, it'll be one of those kind of stories that you can, can you believe that, you know, that in the same way that we didn't know that, you know, smoking was bad for pregnant women or something like that. It'll be like, can you believe that we used to use drinking water to flush loose? Um, because it is, it's deranged, but it's obviously, as you can hear, I, I still think about this all the time. It's like, I lived in a city where everyone was talking for the first time ever about flushing toilets constantly. And I just thought, well, I will never, ever think about any of this the same way ever again. And I, I don't know, you kind of do, because it's just stuff that you take for granted. But maybe the thinking about it, getting people to think about it, talking about mm. it is the first step to not taking it for granted. And not taking it for granted is the first step towards towards it being changed. Yeah, I, I hope so. And, and I think... I don't know, the UK or America or Europe's assumption that being inconvenienced in one's day-to-day life is decades off in the future. I think that assumption is a a lot um, more concrete than people realise. You know, I I learned that that, that there was that leaked memo recently-ish that said that um, the UK had planned to cut bilateral uh, funding for water projects in developing nations by 80%. And 
the, the, what that means for like the rise in preventable deaths of like children, of small children, what that means for like a girl's ability to go to school, what that means for so many different things is so devastating. And, and that's happening, you know, that, that, that cuts like that are happening all over, but there has to be more of a connection between it's the same, it's the same thing coming out of the taps all over the world. You know, it's, it's, everybody needs the same thing and they need pretty much the same amount of it in order to have a life worth living. And I think you can kind of divorce yourself from that knowledge or that reality if you live in a place where it is, seems kind of, um, where it is accessible. But everybody needs water in the same way. And I think the sooner that, people really get their heads around that as soon as something might change I can kind of hear myself taking on like a slightly hectoring tone but it's very difficult not to you know and I think when the water crisis in Cape Town became extremely bad if I think about the way that I grew up you know I grew up taking for granted that water would be coming out the taps but I also I I grew up in in Durban which is a a kind of like a subtropical city sort of and it rains a lot in summer and I grew up swimming in the sea and then swimming in the rivers in the mountains like a couple of hours away from Durban and I and I grew up surrounded by water and kind of in love with water and it was my element always and when I was living in Cape Town and and the severity of the drought kind of really became apparent and I just kept going back and forth and thinking like how how could I have taken this thing for granted that I love so much and is so central to my life how could I have taken it for granted and I think you know as much as I try to avoid the hectoring tone and I think anybody who works in this you know climate scientists or and reporters and anyone who who works in this field I think can feel the hectoring tone creep into their their voice and I, you know, I do try to avoid it, and I think everybody tries to avoid it. But I think my way of trying to keep it out of my voice is to remember that I myself have taken it for granted for so long, um, and I still sometimes do, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and you and you ought to be able to. I mean, that's the thing. The aim ought to be that everyone should be able to take water, should be should be able to take it for granted. Yeah, well, it's the aim. And your pieces really don't have a hectoring tone at all. So. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the contrary very, um, yeah. Rosa Lister thank you very much thank you so much for having me Tom you can read Rosa Lister's piece in the current issue of the LRB along with Adam Schatz on Edward Said Seamus Perry on Seamus Heaney and James Butler on the Government of London <laughs>